Welcome to The Source from the ATA, conversations about telehealth and virtual care from the thought leaders, experts, and visionaries who are working to change the way the world thinks about healthcare. My name is Joe Kavidar. I'm the president-elect of ATA, and I'm honored to serve as the program chair for the ATA's annual conference. This is a critical time in our history, and there's no better time than now to prepare for the future of healthcare that will most certainly include telehealth, and there's no better organization than the ATA to convene our industry, hospital systems, healthcare professionals, telehealth solutions providers, payers, investors, government officials, and other stakeholders to move adoption forward. Today, I'm so very pleased to have Dr. Michelle Seeger, a behavioral sustainability scientist and author who directs the University of Michigan Sport, Health, and Activity Research and Policy Center. Michelle's call to action is for health promoters to stop promoting health and rebrand health as well-being. Her research and tools are being adopted across healthcare, corporate wellness and fitness contexts, including telephonic and site-based health coaching and patient counseling, online diabetes prevention and corporate well-being programs and apps, physician self-care initiatives, and allied health and medical school curricula. She holds four degrees, a PhD in psychology focused on motivation, goals, and sustainable behavior change, an MPH in health behavior, health education, an MS in kinesiology, and a Bachelor's of Arts related to the role of culture and socialization in beliefs and behavior. So we're really, really excited to have you, uh, Michelle, and thanks for joining us. Thank you. I'm excited to connect. So we're really pleased to have you present at the ATA's uh, upcoming virtual conference, uh, uh, June 22nd through the 26th. You're going to be keynoting on Wednesday morning, addressing the fascinating topic of behavior change. And I should, uh, we, we don't know one another. It's great to meet you, uh, albeit virtually, but I have been a student of this uh, space for at least a dozen years and very, very eager to uh, engage with you around the topic. So so let's start out by giving our listeners a sneak peek of what you're going to cover in your talk. Sure. Um, well, I'm thrilled to be participating in this year's ATA conference. Uh, I am going to be talking about how to motivate sustainable behavior change. The sustainability factor has been a core part of my work and interest since the early 90s. Um, so th there really are differences between what gets people to start a healthy behavior like physical activity or healthy diets and what gets them to sustain. Uh, so in this talk, I am going to be relaying part of that formula. And I really like talking about science through storytelling. So part of my presentation is going to iterate between a story and the science about what drives sustainable behavior change. Well, I love stories, so I, I'm looking forward to that. One thing that uh, I know you've been quoted as saying, and, and again, this is something that I'm quite interested in as well, uh, but the quote is, logic doesn't motivate sustainable behavior change, emotions do. And so I, I'd love to engage with you on that. Tell me more about, about what that quote means and some of the evidence behind it and 
let's dig a little deeper. Sure. So in general, when health coaching is done or counseling within healthcare, illogical reasons uh, such as starting to exercise, for example, or changing a diet to uh, get out of prediabetes or to manage some type of or prevent some type of chronic illness. And these are valid and important reasons or motives for trying to engage patients in uh, traditional uh, in, in changing their behavior. And it, it really goes beyond patients and outside of healthcare, but I'm going to try to focus on that since that's, you know, the, the emphasis of the organization. So those types of motives are what we tend to use when we talk to people. Yet, while they're logical, they may not be as motivating as emotions. And the background for that statement really is based in research on behavioral economics, short-term, immediate uh, benefits, which often tend to be emotional in nature, really beat out distant or distal goals or benefits from a behavior. So if we're going to take that into a physical activity paradigm, for example, if we're going to use that as an example, we could think about this question of, well, if we're going to start eating in a different way to, let's say, lose weight, a future goal, which a person or a patient may or may not ever get feedback from, but it's still a future goal. When someone is stressed out and is trying to follow a specific way of eating, that stress is going to undercut them trying to to stick with a decision that really aims to achieve something six months, a year, two years in the future. So uh, logic is often um, paired with a future goal too. Another, uh, so, and so again, behavioral economics has taught us that humans are more motivated by immediate rewards than future rewards. Also diving deeper into the emotional component, and I'm curious to hear, Joe, if you have uh, some reactions or questions after this. Uh, but one of the ways that I think about creating sustainable behavior change is looking outside of uh, behavioral medicine and public health and look at what other types of fields do to hook and engage people in their decisions. And marketing is a great field to look to. When you think about how they do things, marketers know you've got to hook people on how something is going to make them feel, how it's going to connect to their core identity. So that statement, um, logic doesn't motivate sustainable behavior change as well as emotions, that is really steeped in those, uh, you know, there's other research too, but really those two things are what come to the forefront of my mind. Right. Well, well, well spoken. I, I, um, Yes, marketing to me it's uh, fascinating for for many reasons. One is they uh, marketeers do know how to change our behavior. Um, I've often commented, and I'd be curious to get your reaction to this one. That people, for instance, with your training, uh, uh, people in marketing, behavior economists, there's 
multiple different ways of looking at the same elephant, and and yet many times those or uh, disciplines don't talk to one another very much, or, or don't interact. And I think that there's got to be much learned from from all of them uh, um, amongst each other. And I, I wonder why we we can't get more of that going because everyone again, it's a blind man and elephant problem, in in my opinion. Everyone has a view, uh, but together they must be much more powerful. Absolutely. And I think the other thing to think about is our approach, our logical future-oriented approach to changing healthy behaviors hasn't really been very effective, right? We have decades of of data and efforts that really have not created sustainable behavior change. They have created short-term and immediate uh, changes, but those changes are not sustained for the most part. And I, you know, I would suggest that the reason why is that we've been using the wrong motivators. So yeah, it's, it's, it's an exciting time to be talking about this. Well, and it's a critical part of, of, uh, again, that the, there's no, uh, it's not an accident that I asked, uh, when, when Deanna Grossbaum, uh, saw, uh, I think a, a YouTube talk, um, and suggested that we bring you on. I was immediately hooked because I'm, again, so the, the behavior change is such a critical component of how we move healthcare delivery forward. And I think it's 70 or 80% of co- healthcare costs in the U.S. are lifestyle related. So we, we just have to get this and this whole idea that I think we're, as as clinicians, we are trained to sort of be very logical with you. Uh, if you don't lose five pounds, you're going to have a heart attack in 10 years. And that just doesn't resonate with people at all, to your point. So you know, very exciting. And I know our audience will just soak it up because, you know, I think that everyone knows that there's there's a lack, uh, there, there's something missing. And I think you have a very good uh, finger on the pulse of what that is. So very exciting. One one quick thing I'd love to get your reaction to on, on the other topic we were just talking about. Um, and I've, I've thought a bit about this, so I'm curious if you agree. Um, the, the one thing I would, the one caveat I would say about using marketing as a comparator is that it's, I think, easier to get you to press the um, impulse um, purchase button than to do something that improves your health. I think that latter is harder. And especially when you're talking to people with an illness and reminding them as part of it that they have an illness, I, I think that just makes it more challenging. I think that's a good point. Marketers, you know, really do aim to create point of purchases, but they also aim to create a meaning underneath choices and behaviors. And so while maybe the primary focus of marketers is to push that sale, they also want to keep pushing that sale again and again and again. Otherwise, they're going to lose their customer, their consumer, they're going to lose market share. So if we, if you think about it, they're not just trying to get you to do a single point of purchase. You know, we can think of Apple, for example. They want you to keep buying it again and again and again. So from that point of view, you know, I think we can see that, well, how do they do that? How do they get people so invested that this person is going to continuously go to that store or, or purchase that product or subscribe to that service? So I guess expanding on what you said by, you know, going from just a point, a single point to a lifelong relationship with a product or service. 
Yeah, that, that's a good nuance. Well, well said. So, Michelle, you've translated science into sustainable behavior change messages and programming, and you've worked with a prestigious list of companies and organizations to change policies, programs, and practices related to health and wellness. In fact, you've suggested that we should rebrand health as well-being. So tell us more about that. That is to say, what's behind that phrase, rebranding health as well-being, and any stories related to some of the more successful uh, engagements you've had and, and things that people learned as a result? Sure. Well, I have to say the be- the, f- the beginning of that call to action came out of some research I was doing uh, with unexpected findings. We were hypothesizing, our, 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 one of our primary hypotheses was that uh, people who exercised for uh, weight loss reasons would have the worst motivational profiles and participate in exercise less than people who endorsed other reasons related to reduce stress and increase mood and health. So, you know, we had those, those were the two primary things we hypothesized. And when we were looking at the data, we were shocked to discover that uh, those individuals who said that they exercised for health reasons actually had as worse um, motivational profiles as those who exercise for weight loss and did, you know, the least amount of exercise among these different uh, motivation groups we created. And I, I, you know, to be really honest, I was disturbed by that finding because an assumption that I had always had was that health was an intrinsic, uh, internally important reason for uh, uh, doing health behaviors like physical activity or changing one's diet. And these data really challenged that assumption. Um, but, w- you know, one of the wonderful things about research is that we learn from it. And so I, I wanted to, to take that uh, r- shocking finding and more deeply understand, well, why is it? Why would health be almost as bad of a motivator as weight loss? And, you know, we don't have to get into why weight loss, I'm I'm guessing it's pretty obvious why changing a behavior to lose weight winds up being a very poor motivator over time. Um, But why is it true for health? So I, I started to look outside of my field and try to understand what makes adopting a healthy behavior for health so detrimental to long-term participation. And, you know, I'm going to throw a few different things out, and I haven't really talked about this in a while, so we may have to circle back if I if I remember something that I, that I'm forgetting now. So going back, touching on the conversation that we already had about logic and emotions, health health reasons for exercising, disease prevention, losing weight, etc., those tend to be pretty logical. The other thing about them is you tend not to get feedback when you are striving, when you're achieving these things. And again, weight loss, I, I shouldn't have said that because it, it, I want to take that out of the conversation. So 
think about the health outcomes people are hoping to get from changing their diet or exercising more or getting more sleep, those things aren't necessarily going to bring immediate and consistent feedback that, oh, gee, when I do this, I'm actually, I'm getting healthier. So it kind of happens in a vacuum. And classic and really important research on goal striving or, you know, continuing to persist toward the goals we have is very clear that we have got to keep getting consistent feedback that we are making strides and progress toward those goals. So that is, that's really a big reason behind why we need to think about the fact and consider that health as a driver for healthy behavior, behavior change actually might be shooting people in in the foot. Um, And so that is, that's kind of my first answer. And before I go in, I want to see if you have any thoughts or reactions or concerns about that. Oh, it makes sense. I, it's a, well, I guess my, my response is that I, as, as a clinician, have been struck over my three decades or 35 years now of doing this, that people shortchange health. That they, You're right. They're motivated by different things. And, and um, there's so many uh, stories uh, of, and, and, uh, in the world of connected health with connected devices. And again, learning a lot of the things that you're, you're espousing here when we, when we gave patients things like home blood pressure cuffs or home uh, connected glucometers and and sort of studied how they reacted to all that. And it just keeps coming back to this idea that there's something about health that isn't as, it, it isn't as enchanting to to most everyday folks as it is to us who are practitioners of it for some reason. And I, I still think there's something to learn there because it seems logical, again, logical that you would want to improve your health, right? You want to live longer, you want to but there's this thing about wanting to live long, but on my own terms, I want to do it. I don't really want to be, uh, you know, take pay attention to it every minute of every day. It's pretty fascinating. You know, that's something that I'm actually going to dive a little deeper into in my in my talk. Um, but w- again, what I learned after I started studying this from that study is, you know, and, and it really speaks to what you just said, like, why aren't people as enchanted with health as, you know, we are in the field. And another reason is because, you know, if you ask people, do they want to be healthy? Do they value better health? You know, 95% of the population is going to raise their hands because it's a value. It's, It's a value, especially in the United States, that it is really prevalent. Yet, on a daily basis, when you think about what does it take to uh, realize or enact health, those things might just be far down on the to-do list. You know, people have jobs with urgent deadlines and unexpected priorities and kids who get sick and aging parents that they have to take to the doctor. And so when it comes down to it, the things that we do for health, it's very hard to make them relevant and compelling compared to these other things. So it's not that they're not important. It's just that compared to everything else, they just might not rank on a consistent basis. Yeah, no, I, 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 I agree. Agree with that. And I've had that experience. Yeah. So, but now let's get to your, 
your full question, which is, you know, why do I think we, you know, why do, why do I tell organizations that they should rebrand health as well-being? And the reason is, again, it comes out of that whole line of research showing that the immediate positivity that people get from their choices during the day is really what is most compelling to people. You know, people are tired, they're in a bad mood, they might be, uh, you know, have anxiety. So what is going to motivate them amidst all these other priorities that really are their top priorities? Well, it's the things that's going to help them feel better. But that's only part of the equation of well-being. You know, there are a lot of definitions. There are a lot of different definitions, different ways of measuring well-being that have been going on for the last uh, more than two decades. But I'm going to focus on a very simple way of thinking about well-being. And some research shows that when people experience immediate positivity from something, it, it energizes them. It gives them more fuel to do the things well that they care most about. So, you know, if you love your work, it's going to give you more energy. When you have positivity, you have more enthusiasm to bring to being a parent, professional, or partner. And when you do well at these things that you care so much about, that generates positivity. So, and then you have more energy and enthusiasm to bring to more meaning-making activities. And so the whole idea of well-being is that, you know, from this perspective, is that the things that help us feel and be our best selves, that brings us well-being. So um, from a taking a step back from that notion, research also shows that positive affect, and affect is a, you know, is a very uh, research, researchy word. And what that means is just people's feelings. So positive feelings are known to drive, to motivate people unconsciously. So people are driven to do the things that make them feel good and and it can happen even outside of their conscious awareness. So if we can rebrand eating in certain ways away from health toward well-being, then we will be setting our patients and even ourselves up for, uh, you know, up to stick with it better because of all the science behind it. Um, And I do want to say something else about branding that will kind of tie back to our earlier conversations about marketing. Branding is this process that aims to create associations um, between ideas and feelings and, you know, products and services. So when you, you, we could think of this as behavioral branding that, right. And so when we tell patients, you know, start exercising for this reason, and it might feel like a, you know, like a chore. It might feel like a should. You, we are literally branding that healthy behavior in the minds of our patients. Consider the difference between that and saying to people, if you move more, you're gonna, your mood is going to be lifted. You're going to have more energy. And, and, you know, research even shows that minimal minutes worth of movement does increase energy. So when we when we give that message 
uh, it, it really does change how people receive it. Uh, and I'm curious, Joe, to know if that's happened to you, because in my clinician trainings, I often get emails back from people from, uh, you know, the healthcare practitioners, and they say to me, oh my gosh, after your training, I spoke to my patients in this different way, and wow, did I get a different response. So I think that's really exciting. And again, it goes back to what marketers do. They try to have people develop specific positive experiences with something. So I'll stop there and see what you have to say. No, I I love it. I love it. It's it's a great you know, this has been chock full of insights. Great, great stuff. Good place for us to leave it because we want to give people, we've given them a good good glimmer of why they should uh, be listening to you. And, and I look forward to uh, hearing your talk as well. Michelle will be a keynote speaker at the American Telemedicine Association Annual Conference this year taking place virtually June 22 through the 26th. I encourage each one of you to block the time on your calendar We have a jam-packed agenda with over 200 speakers, 75-plus sessions, an interactive exhibit experience, networking opportunities, and a research track, which includes poster sessions and CME. For more information, go to the website, gotelehealth.org. Thanks for listening to The Source from the ATA. We want to hear from you. What topics should we cover? Who would you like to hear from? To share your comments and suggestions, and for more information about the ATA, telehealth, and virtual care, please visit our website, americantelemed.org, and our American Telemed accounts on LinkedIn and Twitter. Finally, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and share this podcast on your favorite platforms. It really makes a difference. Copyright 2020 ATA. All rights reserved.